0: Welcome to the Collapse Experiment. Adjust that a little bit. So, yeah. Lately, Terrence Yeeke has been popping up not just on the internet, but on the actual news. CNN? What's going on at CNN? I don't know. Uh, Perhaps they hired some real journalists? That's just a guess. I have no idea. But, um, yeah, after 20, what did my wife say? 27 years, uh, they decided to actually cover the death of a police officer. That was definitely not a suicide. Um, the problem that I have with, um, stories like this one is that you end up with a lot of short little clips, um, where, I'm just going to actually search it on here. Uh, you have these short little clips that don't go into detail. They just kind of give the basic facts. And it's it's more like a talking point. Oh, did you hear about that police officer that blah, blah, blah. Definitely didn't Epstein himself. Uh, meanwhile, uh, when you look at the details... That's where it becomes very obvious as to what happened, why it happened, and who probably did it. So, I'm going to start out with this article by CNN. Uh, let's see here. It is... Everybody's been reading it. Why did this cop turn up dead? I mean, it's it's not a very good selling point, but... Um, I'm going to go through this and because last year I was doing research, I had an idea for doing a book on Yiki, and while I learned quite a bit while researching this story and who he was and other people who are actually tied to this story, there wasn't really enough to do an actual book. You could do like a, a Hunter S. Thompson style, perhaps 20, 30,000 word article um, but as for a book, uh, until, like, more information is brought to light, discovered, found, um, there's there's news articles and, and video footage I remember from high school, because I was six. no, I wasn't even 16 yet when the OKC bombing happened. And I remember in 96 when Yiki uh was found dead. There was news coverage of it and there were journalists out there who were asking questions. Like how is this a suicide? And they investigated, they they had photos, they had footage of the crime scene. I remember seeing this on TV. Good luck finding it now cuz I haven't been able to. Granted Like I said, I was in high school, I was young, but this was the type of story that had me glued to the TV. Um, Particularly with this video, I remember them showing the Canadian Sheriff's Department was searching the area for the weapon. And then a helicopter flew in with the chief of police from the Oklahoma City Police Department, who didn't have jurisdiction, and the FBI. Now... The Sheriff's Department, because they found the body, you know, they were first on scene. But it was federal land because this was outside of federal prison outside of El Reno. So the FBI technically had jurisdiction, but it was a suicide. And the FBI doesn't investigate suicides except for this case. Uh, and I remember specifically there was a photo of the chief of police hanging off the side of the helicopter as it was landing. He had a gun in hand. He walked up to the body, dropped the gun, and said, look, there it is. How did you not see this? However, because it's a suicide, that gun has never been registered as evidence. Um, It's almost like they needed to finish completing the scene so that they could have the uh, the determination of death as they wanted it. Uh, they also had the coroner come out and do an uh, a observation of the body. And then he declared what it was instead of doing an autopsy. Which is very suspicious. But... Anyways, let's get back to this article, because there's a lot of details in this, and this is probably going to be a long feed. A heroic police officer rescued at least three people after the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing. A year later, he was found shot in the head. So, uh, the bombing memorial is a somber, beautiful place framed by two monuments called the Gates of Time. Uh, so he goes on to explain what the gates of time is. This story is about one of those people. His name is Terry Yiki. He was an Oklahoma City police officer and a military veteran, stationed in Saudi Arabia during Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Weird, because so is Timothy McVeigh. Yiki saved at least three people from the ruins of the Alfred P Murrah Federal Building on April nineteenth, nineteen ninety-five. The day a terrorist attack killed 168 people and injured hundreds of others. Something happened to Yiki in those hours in the wreckage. He was badly shaken and his worldview seemed to change. In time, he grew suspicious and afraid. We'll learn why. He He ran afoul of his supervisors. He went on secret missions, withholding his motives and plans from fellow officers. He seemed to be conducting his own investigation. Okay, this reporter obviously did not do very much research because Yiki was doing his own investigation. Uh, We know this for a fact. And then, 385 days after the bombing, his body was found near some trees in a field off a country road. His wrists were cut, his neck was cut, he had been shot through the head. The authorities said it was suicide, but among those who knew Terry, not many believed he had killed himself. Because he didn't. And there's also, um, there's other evidence from the, um, the actual autopsy uh, medical records that show it wasn't just wrist and neck cut. Um, this guy, he went through hell before he died. In a recent interview, his sister, Lashon Hargrove, said this. I think they murdered Terry because he knew too much. That is true. Despite his bravery that day, Yiki did not see himself as a hero. Even among those who disagree on how Terry Yiki died, there is little to no dispute in these two points. The Oklahoma City Police Department planned to give him a Medal of Valor for his actions on the day of the bombing. Yiki did not want the Medal of Valor. There is a good reason for this. Because after the bombing, for some reason, the Oklahoma City Police Department... When they were getting their recognition and people were sent to meet President Bill Clinton, uh, they sent officers who weren't there. There was one woman in particular who met Bill Clinton. It was on camera. Uh, People were watching this on the news nationwide. And Yiki told his then ex-wife she wasn't even there. What are they doing? So he didn't want to be associated with these people who were getting these honors because... Almost all of them were fake. They, they didn't do anything. They were just there because it was a good camera, photo op. Not long after the explosion, a maintenance worker lay under the rubble, willing uh, himself to stay conscious. His name was Randy Ledger. Broken glass had pierced his corroded artery and his jugular vein. Uh, part of his face was missing. Ledger had been cleaning light fixtures in the building, federal building, Child's Care Center, a few minutes before the bomb went off. Now trapped by debris and bleeding to death, Ledger felt a strange weight on his lower body. He was buried so deep that someone had stepped on his legs without knowing he was there. Uh, That someone turned out to be Yiki, the police officer who was about to save his life. Yiki was 29 years old, tall, muscular, well-known among colleagues for his strength and determination. On his way back up, a partner in a burglary burglary in progress call one day. His patrol car broke down. It was over 100 degrees outside, but Yiki got out and ran the rest of the way. Another time when an angry crowd surrounded Yiki and colleagues, the ringleader tried to grab the, off, the other officer's badge. Yiki picked up the suspect, wadded him up like a paper napkin and threw him on the ground i'm wondering where they found these stories because i this is the type of stuff i was looking for and could not find it the other officer larry spurl uh, recalled the rest of the mob quickly dispersed Yiki was one of the first officers in the ruins of the federal building after the explosion and he had already saved at least two people before he stumbled upon randy ledger Yiki called for other rescuers, and together they dug Ledger out and helped him into a backboard. Uh, Ledger drifted out of consciousness. Minutes later, in an ambulance, he saw Yiki again. Now Yiki was getting treated, too. He had fallen and hurt his back while carrying Ledger to safety. Okay, so, if this is true, there was, uh, I was finding discrepancies with timing and when certain things happen, uh... Because they made it sound like, in other articles, Yiki was working all day, uh, digging people out. But this sounds like possibly it was earlier in that day. He he worked until his fingers bled. It was uh, something that constantly came up. Ledger needs 12 pints of blood and multiple surgeries to repair his face. He recently turned 66. He still thinks of the bombing almost every day. Little things bring the memory back. A musty smell. A news report. A yellow truck on the highway. And when Ledger recalls the bombing, he sometimes thinks of Tara Yiki. He feels gratitude and sadness. As for the official story that Yiki killed himself, Ledger, Ledger finds it unconvincing. It's more than unconvincing. There are too many unanswered questions, he said recently. Brandon Spann, now an administrative assistant to the Canadian County Sheriff's Sheriff's Office, played basketball with Yiki and knew many of the same people Yiki knew. He said that in the black community of El Reno, a town northwest of Oklahoma City where Yiki grew up, the official story never took hold. No one believed that he killed himself. Three of Yiki's fellow Oklahoma City police officers also shared their doubts in interviews with CNN. Jim Ramsey. This is a guy who's probably going to come up several times. Won a medal of bravery on the day of the bombing and had previously patrolled the streets with Yiki. Here's how he responded in a late 2022 when asked if he believed what the authorities said about Yiki's death. No, Ramsey said, I guess I don't. Funny, you had other words during that time. I still don't believe Terry did it, said Steve Vassar, one of Yiki's closest friends on the force. I have just a hard time believing that Terry would take his life. Don Browning, serving the Oklahoma City PD for 28 years and helped with Yiki's initial police training. Here's what Browning said about Yiki. I still think he was murdered. You didn't speak up then. A CNN investigation found several anomalies surrounding Yiki's death, along with a lack of transparency by the authorities. Just, just a bit, you know, just a, a lack of transparency. Although Yiki apparently died from a gunshot wound to the head, no autopsy was performed. Medical examiners can sometimes choose not to purport an autopsy when suicide is suspected and the cause of death is not in dispute, According to Dr. Joyce DeLong, DeJong, president of the National Association of Medical Examiners, but three former law enforcement officials familiar with the Yiki case said they thought an autopsy should have been done. And the family requested one. When asked why there is no autopsy on Yiki, the Oklahoma City Police Department spokesman, Master Sergeant Gary Knight referred a reporter to the State Medical Examiner's Office whose Director of Operations, Carrie, Le- Carrie Learned, wrote, Our office does not answer case-specific questions. Carrie needs to learn how to do her job. The Oklahoma City Police Department took over the investigation of Yiki's death after, even though his body was found outside the city limits. Weird. You don't have jurisdiction. It's also on federal land. Hmm. Uh, in adjacent uh, Canadian County to the west, when CNN asked what gave the city's police department legal justification to take over the case, Knight wrote back that he didn't know. We just did, I guess. <laughs> The precise location where Yiki's body was found has never been publicly disclosed, and basic information about the death scene is unclear. The police department declined multiple requests to release its full investigative report on the case. The redacted two-page report released by OCPD in response to CNN's records request does not say whether a gun was found at the scene, much less what kind of gun killed Yiki or whether it was subjected to fingerprinting or ballistic test. Funny, because they tried to tell the family that Yiki used his own service pistol, and when the family requested his service pistol, it was denied. Both Knight and Police Chief Wade Gurley declined to be interviewed about Yiki's death. There's absolutely no hard or physical evidence whatsoever to support Yiki was murdered. Oh, really? We'll get into that. Knight, a police academy classmate who considered Yiki a friend, wrote in an email to CNN anyone who suggests the Oklahoma City Police Department participated in the cover-up of the murder of one of its most popular officers is engaging in fool's folly. Funny, because you don't have a really good reputation for protecting police officers, especially when police officers themselves will say to another guy, Hey, don't don't be a Yiki. That's a thing. That's that's something that they uh, apparently said over there after Yiki's death. If you were about to cause trouble for another off, if you're gonna go beyond the blue blue wall of silence, um, you might be a Yikied. Yiki's car, a maroon Ford Probe Coupe, was found abandoned near Fort Reno Road in Canadian County around 6 p.m. On May 8th, 1996, according to a sheriff's report, the car was locked and the windows were rolled up. A deputy looked inside and saw a Bible, an empty gun holster, a razor blade, and a large amount of blood. Yiki's body was eventually found about half a mile away. Police said, "Mm, Half a mile away. That's not what my notes say. Medical examiner's report noted multiple superficial incised wounds on Yiki's wrist, neck, and uh, antecubital fossa, the inner crook of the arm. Although there is no autopsy, the report listed a probable cause of death: gunshot wound to the head. If the prevailing narrative is correct, Yiki cut his own wrist, arms, neck with razor blades, bled heavily in his car then walked or ran about half a mile into either a field or a grove of trees where he shot himself to death. There was no suicide note. But they're not covering what led up to this. The absence of a note was among several reasons people wondered what might have pushed Yiki towards suicide in statements to the news media after his death. The police had to answer for that. One possible factor was turmoil in Yiki's personal life. He had been married with two young daughters, but he and his wife, Tanya, divorced in late 95, and court records, Tanya wrote that Terry had beaten her, choked her, and threatened to shoot her, himself, and one of their daughters. Yeah, um, I don't know if that was substantiated or not, I have seen interviews with the ex-wife, She had reportedly applied for a protective order against him in February 1995. About 15 months before Terry's death, a judge had ordered Terry to have no contact with Tanya except regarding visitation and welfare of their daughters. Did the repercussions from domestic violence play a role in Yeeke's death? They're leaving a lot of crap out when it comes to this. Yiki's friend and colleague Steve Vassar told CNN he once read Oklahoma City Police Department's full investigative report on Yiki's death. According to Vassar, the report said Major Steve Upchurch, another douchebag, called Yiki shortly before his death, told him Tanya had reported him for violating the protective order. That's false told Yiki he was being placed on administrative leave and told Yiki another officer was coming to take away Yiki's gun and badge. But even if this is not what happened from what I looked up, this is complete BS. But even if Vassar correctly remembers what was in the report, which has never been released, those details are contested. Major Upchurch told CNN in a phone interview that he had no recollection of making such a call to Yiki. Weird. He said he didn't remember Yiki having any trouble with his ex-wife before his death and that he said he didn't remember anything about Yiki being in trouble with his superiors. Mm, Mmm, not so true. Besides that, Tanya vehemently denied reporting him for a protective order violation in 1996 in interviews with the author Craig Roberts. By the way, you should really check this book out. Uh, the tapes of which were reviewed by CNN. Tanya Yiki said she and Ter- Terry Yiki were in good terms before his death. She said they regularly saw each other, and he had recently asked about her, uh, asked her about getting remarried. She had said she had not said yes, but she had not said no. If Yiki's death was unrelated to a troubled relationship or for fears of losing his job, the left other that left other potential cause put forth to the news media by the police department. Yiki was depressed about the bombing. Okay. News coverage after Yiki's death depicted a man haunted by what he had seen in the rubble and racked with guilt that he couldn't save more lives. That was the BS that they came up with the day that he was found dead. There are some people that like to be heroes and some that don't. One of Yiki's supervisors... (laughs) Lt. Randall said, as quoted by the Associated Press in 96, he was not one that wanted that. Because you are faking the title. Why didn't Terry Yiki want the Medal of Valor? There was another possible reason, and for those who said he was murdered, that reason was a crucial part of the story. They're not telling the truth, Yiki said. In a brief phone conversation last November, Yiki's ex-wife Tanya told CNN she still believed Yiki had been murdered, Then she stopped answering the reporter's calls. But Tanya's story was captured in 1998 in two recorded interviews with Craig Roberts, a former police officer who was researching the Oklahoma City bombing. One was a private phone interview and the other for a radio broadcast. After reviewing the tape, CNN found collaboration for some of Tanya's claims. They also forgot here that Craig Roberts was one of the initial investigators in the Oklahoma City bombing. And when his investigation wasn't taking him in the direction of Timothy McVeigh was a lone wolf, um, he had to step down because they were shutting him down anyways. So this is a guy who was, he was assigned the job to investigate this and then they didn't want him to continue because he kept going in a direction they did not want. Uh, on the day of the bombing, Tanya said she got a phone call. It was someone at Presbyterian Hospital telling her T- Terry was there. His back was injured when he had fell while carrying Randy Ledger, and now Terry seemed, uh, Terry needed someone to pick him up. So Tanya picked him up from the hospital, and in the car, she says she started to cry. He started to cry. Tanya, it's not what they're saying. It is. He told her they're not telling the truth. They're lying about what's going on down there. Terry was disturbed by what he had seen in the ruins of the federal building, and not just because he had walked into an unfathomable uh, human tragedy. Terry was convinced that there was more to the story of the bombing. Some other pieces of the some other piece the authorities were withholding. He was not the only one who believed this. Federal authorities said Timothy McVeigh, a 26-year-old Army veteran who hated the government, uh, caused the explosion by parking a rented Ryder truck near the federal building and setting off timed fuses that detonated a bomb made of agricultural fertilizer, diesel fuel, and other chemicals. Yeah, we're going to learn that that's not really accurate either. Two more men, Terry Nichols and Michael Fortier, Uh, were also prosecuted in connection with the case. Actually, Fortier, he was prosecuted for something else. He uh, wasn't really linked to OKC when he went to prison, and he's, last I knew, he was already out of prison. In months and years that followed, a stubborn contingent of skeptics pursued other angles of the story. We're going to learn about some of those Some of them had either survived the bombing or lost loved ones because of it. They insisted that the government officials were somehow culpable. It was a botched sting operation, they said. Or perhaps the government permitted or even orchestrated the bombing for political advantage. Joe Biden. The government denied these allegations, of course, and still does. This was probably the FBI's finest moment. Bob Ricks, who was a special agent in charge of the FBI's Oklahoma City field office in 1995, said in a recent interview referring to the bombing investigation, this was probably the FBI's finest moment. You had an informant in these Aryan Nation right-wing militia groups Telling you that there was a bomb plot on the Murrah building repeatedly. She told you and you did nothing. Yeah, finest moment. You might want to check, just cross that off the list of your finest moments because that's not one of them. Still, there is something about the case that makes people want to keep investigating. There are multiple reports of prior warnings given to some federal employees. Derp. Uh, of an unidentified suspect, second suspect in the Ryder truck, yeah, we kind of know who that was now, and of additional explosives that allegedly contributed to the blast. Yep, and we know how they were placed there. Rick said that those reports were false. Rick, fuck you. And started laughing when a reporter asked about them. But in 1997, more than 10,000 Oklahoma County residents signed a petition to convene a grand jury to examine the bombing, and they got one. Even after the grand jury dismissed allegations of additional suspects and prior knowledge of the government, a band of citizens kept digging into the mystery led by former Oklahoma City Rep. Charles Key. Fun fact, anytime I try to order the book by um that was uh, co-authored by Charles Key. It does not make it to my house. So I don't know if that's Amazon or the the postal service, UPS, I don't know who's doing that, but um y'all need to stop cuz anytime I order something about this event, it does not make it to my house. I'm not kidding. The Oklahoma Bombing Investigation Committee issued its own report, which filled more than 500 pages and told a story at odds with the one that emerged at McVeigh's trial. Because the one at McVeigh's trial is what they wanted him to say. Explosives expert, including retired Air Force Brigadier General Benton Parton, reviewed the case and said McVeigh's bomb alone could not have caused that much damage. Explosives do not pulverize concrete unless it's drilled into and inserted. There is strong evidence that demolition charges were in the building, Parton wrote in a letter to a prosecutor in 1997, irrespective of the size of the truck bomb. Yep. For his part, Terry Yiki believes some government employees had lied about their whereabouts during the bombing. He was the witness. Associates said Yiki was surprised to see so many federal agents apparently dressed in riot gear on the scene moments after the blast. He had questions about the source of the explosion, according to his sister LaShawn Hargrove. You know how they said that the truck blew in? He said he saw evidence of blowing out or signs of a blast that appeared to have come from inside the building. A few days after the bombing, Tanya said Terry asked her to drive him back to the federal building. He wanted to go at night when he couldn't, when he couldn't be seen as easily. We did go there probably between 9.30, 10 o'clock, and he said that he was going to go look underneath where the daycare had been. She said there was something he wanted to see over there and get a picture. If possible, as we went down there, we were stopped and, and I couldn't remember which personal it was, but I know definitely it was either ATF or FBI. And Terry had attempted to badge his way through, and the cop told him no. The guy told him no. And he said something a little more specific like, you know you're not supposed to be back down here. It made me realize the two of them had recognized each other, and the interaction was very antagonistic. I think I had been not if I had not been with Terry he would have said a little more to the man and maybe been a little more forceful about getting through. But it seemed like he thought better about it since I was with him and we left. Tani said Terry wrote a detailed report for the police department. This is all true too. Perhaps nine pages long. She didn't know what was in the report, but one day he came to the house furious, telling her the report had disappeared, and now his superiors were telling him to write another report only one page long, leaving out most of what he had written before. About two weeks after the bombing, she said he got a phone call from she got a phone call from one of Terry's superiors. And she was being pretty hostile, pretty aggressive, and asked me where Terry was. Tanya said sh- Tanya said. she said, "You tell Terry that if he doesn't get their report, in, that he's going to be reprimanded. Oh, boo-hoo. Did an officer's report on the bombing disappear? Yes. Yes, it did. A spokesman for the Oklahoma City Police Department declined to answer this or other questions on the extensive list sent by CNN. CNN must have actually done some journalistic work. This is amazing. Hell must have frozen over. Or did did they start up that Hydron Collider again? Like, is this a new world that we're in? Like, is Trump coming back? Like, what is happening? But Tanya's account is consistent with a story another Oklahoma City police officer told. Steve Vassar said he was downtown a few minutes before the bombing and saw the infamous Ryder truck. Officially, Timothy McVeigh was alone when he drove the truck to the federal building. (laughs) Officially... But others have said that he had an accomplice that morning and Vassar said he saw another truck, another person in the truck. I'm going to tell you right now, he said, as God is my witness, there were two people. Okay, this guy, Steve Vassar. Yeah, if, um, this dude, he he needs to be saluted because, um... You know, he's actually, even this this long after the bombing, like, he's kind of putting his job at jeopardy here. Vassar says that although he wrote this account in one of his supplemental reports on the bombing, no investigator ever questioned him about what he had seen. Years later... He, researched, he searched for his reports in the Oklahoma City Police Department's computer system. He says he saw hundreds of other reports about the bombing and its aftermath, but he couldn't find his own report. Yeah, they were gone, he said. Uh, they were not in the system, as if I never was there. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a cover-up or anything. On the day he died, Yiki said that he was on his way to a mysterious meeting... In his final weeks, Terry seemed afraid. Tanya said he had showed up at her house at odd hours trying to make plans. He wanted me to leave in the middle of the night with him. Right then, he said, we need to get remarried. Don't ask me questions. This is the only way I can make sure you and the girls are taken care of in the event that something happens to me. And they made sure they were not, they made sure that his family was not taken care of afterwards. Tanya said she reported his behavior to the police. Uh, he did not appear suicidal. She did not accuse him of violating a protective order. she said, but she was worried about him because he had been saying these days that he had been saying his days were numbered. One day in May 1996, he showed up at her house and put a VCR in her car without explaining why the VCR had a tape in it, but she didn't get a chance to watch it. Uh, Terry was talking about insurance papers. He he left and said he would be back. Uh, she never saw him again. Shortly before his death, Terry also visited his sister Vicky and her husband Glenn in El Reno, the town northwest of Oklahoma City, where Terry and Vicky grew up. Vicky and Glenn have both died since then, but another sister, Lashawn Hargrove, said they told her about the encounter. Terry was exhausted, upset, crying. Uh, he said he needed to sleep, and they, were encouraged, and they encouraged him to take a nap there, which he did. Afterwards, he calmed down, but he was talking about the bombing, the official story with which he disagreed. According to LaShawn, he told his sister and brother-in-law it's just not what they say it is. They asked him to tell them more, but he said he couldn't. There was something else Terry saw near the end. Ramona... Uh, Ramona McDonald, this is a famous letter, whom he had met in the rubble of the federal building. This account is drawn from an interview she gave to CNN in January, as well as a taped interview with the author Craig Roberts in 1998. McDonald eventually left Oklahoma City and changed her name, a decision she attributed in part to trauma related to the bombing and to Yeeke's death. Yeah, they were corresponding back and forth to each other, and there's a letter out there that he, he wrote to her that uh, explained quite a bit. McDonald was a businesswoman who had been downtown when the bomb went off. She helped publish a book, Angels Over Oklahoma City, that named and honored hundreds of first responders from around the country who converged on Oklahoma City after the bombing. While volunteering in the rescue and recovery effort, McDonald also met survivors who questioned the official story. Her home became a meeting place for these people and a clearinghouse for pictures and other evidence they gathered. She said the evidence included a copy of Terry Yeeke's full report from the day of the bombing. I have never heard this before. Holy shit. The... W- Uh, the one his supervisors had allegedly suppressed. According to McDonald, two men came to her house sometime after the bombing. She believed they were federal agents. They said that they were with a task force that was investigating the bombing, and they spent hours examining her collection of pictures. Oh, my God. When people with suits show up, you don't let them in. The last day McDonald saw Yiki, she says they sat down and had coffee together. He was talking about an appointment from his description of the men she was supposed to meet. She believed that they were the same two men who had been at her house. The men from the task force seemed keenly interested in the evidence about the bombing. They wanted Terry to bring what he had gathered, pictures, video, and documents. Yiki seemed conflicted about whether to go meet the men. He sensed danger, and these misgivings led him to a strange precaution. McDonald said Yiki went to the meeting unarmed so no one could use his own gun against him. That's interesting. On the other hand, if the men really were investigating the bombing, this could be Yiki's big chance. Finally, someone with authority was going to listen to him. (sighs) He decided to bring them the evidence, McDonald said. The men wanted to meet Yiki in El Reno at or near the federal building, which is funny because um, I believe it was Tanya who was saying that Yiki was suspicious of activity around the prison because growing up in El Reno, he knew bad stuff happened there. Yiki left McDonald's house, apparently on his way to the meeting. She never saw him again. It was later that day when someone called to say that he was dead. His body was found west of El Reno and two miles from the prison. Uh, It was a lonely, windswept place with tall grass under a big sky past the barbed wire fence off Fort Reno Road, where Yiki's car was found. A stream runs north. North and east towards the grove of trees in an old graveyard. Tanya said Terry would never have gone there willingly. He knew that land and it made him afraid. Yeah. I remember him at one point in time saying that lots of bad things went on over there, she said. He wouldn't have been caught. Oh, excuse me. I was getting ready to say he would not have been caught dead there, but I guess he was. Mama, they executed him. I'm um, Kind of surprised that CNN actually put all of this together, but again, um, there's still there's still a lot missing here. Terry Yiki's body was found on a Wednesday night. By Thursday morning, an Oklahoma City police captain had already told the Associated Press it appears Yiki had killed himself. That was almost 27 years ago. Ever since then, Yiki's death has been officially called a suicide. Now, why would they need a suicide? Oh. They're not investigated. That's why. Tanya said she met with the police chief and told him she disagreed with that conclusion. She said she tried without success to arrange for an autopsy. That's some bullshit. She said local attorneys refused to take her case. She said one told her it'd be best for me and my family just to leave it alone. Okay. LaShawn Hargrove said... That when she and her sister met with a police detective and raised questions about her brother's death, the detective suggested they needed psychiatric help. There's more going on here than just the police covering things up. All, you have to remember, all these people are connected. They, they work together. They see each other all the time with their professions. Even the attorneys. The attorneys know who the cops are, Right? Uh, Don Browning, one of the officers who questioned the circumstances of Yiki's death, was especially disturbed by the lack of an autopsy. How dare you not do an autopsy on an unintended death on a police officer, he said. According to Browning, he appeared before the grand jury investigating the bombing and confronted a prosecutor about the strange details of Yiki's death. Browning said the prosecutor dismissed him and apparently took no action in the case, Because the guy is, um... We have certain names for people with no balls. I'll just put it that way. Craig Roberts, a former Marine sniper who later became a Tulsa police officer and book author, stumbled upon Yiki's case while looking into the Oklahoma City bombing. He wrote letters asking the Oklahoma City Police Department to open a new investigation into Yiki's death. Uh, Yeah, that is actually in the Medusa Files, too. Where he lays out the evidence, and um, they sent him a nice little letter back. We're just not going to... We appreciate what you're saying. Though it was originally written up as a suicide, he wrote in 2006, I feel the evidence and facts point to a torture homicide. No kidding. Roberts wrote that Yiki's entrance wound suggests the presence of a silencer. He wrote that the bullet's trajectory would be consistent to one fired execution style to the skull of a kneeling victim, he wrote. There were multiple cuts on his wrist, inner elbows, and jugular veins. If he was going to shoot himself, why would he cut himself so many times? About a month later, Police Chief William Site City, Kitty, C-I-T-T-Y, wrote back to Roberts, I find nothing in the investigator's case files or from the information you have provided to change the finding of suicide. I guess Sidi can't read? I don't know. Uh, he's he's a police chief, but he's not a very good cop. The chief did not answer the questions Roberts raised in the letter, including whether a gun was found at the scene, whether it was Yiki's gun, whether the fatal bullet was ever found. They didn't even bother measuring the, the size of the bullet at the end, Entrance wound. Uh, They just said small caliber. Which is weird because some of the guns that were suggested were, I believe, a 9mm, which would have been Yiki's service uh, piece, or a 357 Magnum, not small. Uh, Or whether the ballistics tests were done to link the bullet and the gun. None of that was done. Robert's letter also raised the question of what happened to terry documents after he died. Tanya said Terry kept some documents from his investigation at a storage unit in Kingfisher, a small city northwest of Oklahoma City, but whatever was there was not there any longer. Roberts said the documents were not in Yeeke's car when it was found by the roadside. It would appear that this tragic event centers on what Terry Yeeke had in his files, Roberts wrote to the police chief. And who wanted to make sure that those files were never discovered? After Terry's death, Tanya said she saw signs of a burglary at her home. She noticed various items out of place. Terry had left a VCR for her, but it disappeared. I was going to bring that up later. She never got a chance to see what was on that tape. Is nobody curious anymore? Like, what the hell? I mean, everybody's sneaking around on everybody else's cell phones to find out who you're, you're texting, and she, she never hit the play button. That's weird. <clears throat> Likewise, Ramona McDonald said her house was burglarized after Yiki's death. Much of her bomb-related evidence was taken. When Terry's family visited his apartment after his death, it looked as if it had been ransacked. There was paper scattered around, his sister LaShawn said, and you could tell somebody had been in there, like, looking for something. There was a lot going on that day. They're not covering it, but uh, I will be. Both LaShawn and Tanya believed that they were under surveillance after Terry's death. They said that they were shadowed by strange vehicles and had heard clicking sounds when they talked on the phone. Shortly after Terry's death, several relatives were looking for the place his body had been discovered. LaShawn says they found it near some trees in a field past a barbed wire fence off Fort Reno Road. There were signs of activity on the ground as if this had been a crime scene, but they noticed something strange. Some of the earth was freshly disturbed, apparently by shovels as if Whatever had been on the surface was now buried, probably because he did not bleed out after being shot. Most troubling of all was the condition of Terry's body. Although the available medical examiner's reports described only a gunshot wound to the head and superficial cuts, elsewhere, Tanya said sources within the law enforcement community told her Terry's body showed evidence of having either been either tied or handcuffed, and of having been dragged across the ground. She said she was told Terry had bruises on his wrist, rope burns on his ankles, dirt and grass in his wounds. CNN asked the Oklahoma City Police Department about these details, but a department spokesman declined to answer the questions. Good for you, dude. LaShawn Hargrove said her mother viewed Terry's body at the funeral home. She said a funeral director tried to discourage her from looking at the body, but her mother said, No, I need to see my baby. <clears throat> and we're almost done with this, and then I'll get into the gritty details. Her mother, who had since died, later told LaShawn that Terry's head was enlarged and disfigured. Uh, she didn't. He didn't just have cuts on his arms and neck. LaShawn said... Her mother reported seeing what appeared to be ligature marks. LaShawn tried to imagine what that meant. It seemed to her that Terry had been tortured, hanged, pulled on his knees, and shot to death. Oh, put on his knees and shot to death. Mama, she recalled saying, they executed him. Sergeant Terry Yiki was buried the same day he posthumously received the Medal of Valor he did not want. Among those at his funeral was Richard Williams, a man whose life he saved. After the bombing, Williams was trapped in the rubble and only his arms sticking out. Yiki came by, felt for a pulse, did not detect one, and moved on to another for look on for other survivors. Later, he returned, realizing Williams was alive, freed him from the wreckage, and brought him to safety. He went on with his next rescue." A picture taken that morning shows the officer in action. He is sweating on his brow, uh, blood on his shirt, dust on his shoes. Terry Yuki was running towards danger. So, uh, they left a lot out. There's, there's a lot that you can't fit in an article since people don't read anymore, which is kind of why I'm doing this video. Uh, I'm surprised CNN even, for one, bothered to investigate this. Apparently, uh, Tim Pool and Jose Galson are uh, making waves. Um, I can only say, the the only speculation I can make is that somebody at CNN was watching the Tim Tim Pool IRL, heard the story, and decided to look into it. Because there's stuff all over, podcasts. There's YouTube videos. There's tons of stuff on Terry Yiki and OKC bombing that uh, has been been done, and yet uh, CNN 26 years later is doing an article on Terry Yiki So apparently this is a, a hot topic Um uh, for those of you thinking I'm just trying to prop, I'm not monetized. So everything I am sharing here is for the sole purpose of getting information out there. So, uh, yeah, Terry Yiki, former military, was stationed in Saudi Arabia during Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Same time that Timothy McVeigh was there. Uh, he became a police officer later. He applied to work for the FBI several times. I believe he was turned down twice, and the third time he applied, they actually finally said, conveniently after the bombing, that they would like to hire him. Uh, I have some suspicions about that. Terry took the job. He was going to be moving. Uh, I believe his sister and another relative were looking to move with him. Uh, I think they were going to Texas, so he he was moving on. But there was still a lot of stuff about the bombing itself that um, he did not he knew to be false. So yes, there was a group of people, survivors, first responders, who were investigating it because all the stuff that was coming out, they're like, that's not true, that's not true. These are people who were there. Uh, there were eyewitnesses that somebody was messing around with weird putty substance in the uh, car, uh, the, uh, the the garage in the basement of the building, also underneath the uh, daycare center, and wires. Uh, this was days before the bombing. Uh, so, there's a lot of things here. That uh, And I'm just going to start with the bombing itself. So Yiki was, he had pulled somebody over for a traffic violation. He was getting information. The bomb, the the truck exploded. He let the person go and responded right away. He was one of the first people who was there. Um, In the minutes that followed, there were people, ATF and FBI, who are in SWAT and riot gear. This is gear that takes anywhere between 45 minutes to an hour to put on. And for some reason, these people were already dressed in it. Uh, There's also a story that by the courthouse, the federal courthouse, which is only a block or two away from the Murrah building, that night, Bomb Squad was there for some reason. Uh, some people say that it was a training exercise. Other people say that they got information that there was explosive devices possibly, uh, at the federal courthouse. And according to McVeigh, the courthouse was the original target that he was supposed to go to, not the Murrah building, but it was changed at the last minute. He was also supposed to park the truck there at night. So yeah, uh, weird, weird coincidences there. Um, so there were the people who were dressed in riot and SWAT gear um, who arrived minutes after the bomb went off, helping find survivors. Um, there were several incidents of other bombs being found. I know YouTube's probably going to um, not like me saying this stuff, but let's be adults here. Um uh, Others, other devices were found at the scene and people were cleared out and, and moved away while they were still finding people alive. And so they're waiting on the sidelines while these devices are cleared out before they could go back in. And this happened several times. I believe two or three times this happened. People were upset. Uh, a lot of them wanted to just continue working because they were still finding people alive. Um, The initial articles that I found said that Yiki worked all day at the scene to the point where his hands were bleeding and he was finally taken away after he fell and hurt his back uh, and he was taken to the hospital. So apparently Yiki was uh, threatened at the hospital when he was receiving treatment by an FBI agent. Uh, they threatened to kill him if he spoke about what he had seen at the Mura building. Um, there were conversations that Yiki had with his ex-wife about the pits. There were... I can't remember the exact number. I have my notes here. But there were two or three areas that they called the pits. And one of them was located underneath the daycare center. Uh, this would have been the the place where the parking garage was in the basement, where two eyewitnesses had seen men in overalls doing things to the columns down there days prior to the explosion. Uh, Yiki, after, after his ex-wife picked him up from the hospital, uh, they got in the car, and one of the first things he said to her was, it's not what they said it was. Uh, Later, he did go back, like the article said, uh, to take pictures. He wanted to take pictures of what he saw in one of the pits. Uh, He wasn't allowed on the property. Um, Apparently, there's speculation that the person that he talked to was the same one that had threatened him previously. Um, After that, Yiki... He was meeting with McDon- Ramona McDonald. Um, there's also Dr. Chumley, um, who was one of the first medical personnel to show up on the scene. Uh, this doctor, he shows up. He starts treating people right away. What Chumley noticed was there were ATF agents. Keep in mind, the ATF, by certain accounts, received messages and, Not to go to work that morning. The ATF was not in the building. And there were stories confirmed to be made up where ATF agents were like, yeah, I was there and I had to do this and I did all this heroic stuff. And yet the guy actually had not been there. Um, So this was a reoccurring theme. People claiming to be some of the heroes of the event who weren't actually there and then showed up later. Uh, Chumley. Uh, had reported that he was approached by an ATF agent saying that he needed his arm bandage. And when Chumley looked at the guy said, you're not injured. Let me go help. I'm not wasting time on you. Let me go help other people that actually need my help. And the ATF agent was pissed and went to somebody else to get bandaged up because the whole thing was a photo op for some of these guys. Uh, Chumley also was working with Yiki, Um, They were meeting, talking, sharing evidence and stuff that they had found. And conveniently, uh, later, uh, I believe it was August of um, 1995, Chumley died in a plane crash where the plane mysteriously just nosedived into the ground for no reason that anybody could figure out. Because that happens. Yeah, uh, they even uh unlike Yiki, there's like a mechanical autopsy done on the plane, and they couldn't find any reason for mechanical failure that would just cause a a plane to nosedive like it did. So Chumley died. Um you had other witnesses that were coming up dead. Um Yiki knew Chumley, uh, like I said, and apparently they they both had a security deposit box at a bank where they were keeping certain information that they had found. And when investigators went to go look at that box after Geeky uh, and Chumley, uh were deceased, there was nothing there. Apparently the bank had no record that they had a box. Not like they wouldn't have used an alias, but yeah. Um, that seemed to have disappeared too. So... Yeah, uh, Yiki was threatened with death by federal agents on April 19th. Uh, yeah, and the gun that they suspected that was used was either a Glock 9mm or a three fifty seven Magnum. Again, not small calibers. So, let's see here. That's the Corbett, Cor- Corbett report. Um... Harry did not want to receive, well, let's, let's do this chronological order. So afterwards, he's injured. He goes and he fills out a nine-page report about what he had seen that day. And then he is told by his supervisor that it was unacceptable, that it was garbage. Uh, he needed to rewrite his report, exclude all the things that they did not like with it, and it had to be one page. So that nine-page report suddenly disappeared. Terry was pissed, um, uh, basically telling everybody that they wanted him to lie, which is true. Um, and then he he was he was working on his own thing. He was collecting evidence. He had boxes of files and records that he had accumulated. There's speculation because. Um, Now, again, this is people, uh, including me, trying to piece things together. After the bombing, there were several videotapes, surveillance tapes, that were collected by the FBI, showing the Murrah building before the bomb went off. These tapes have mysteriously gone missing, but there was an FBI agent who, at one point in time, uh, collected these tapes put together the minutes before the bomb went off showing two people getting out of the truck. At one point, the the FBI agent with this tape contacted, I forget which news agency it was saying, I have the tape showing that there is a John Doe number two. Uh, they meet in this house. There was a sheriff present because the news agency wanted to make sure that everything that they were doing was legal and uh, accessing this tape um, and they watched this this footage of two men getting out of the truck and the second man who was in the passenger seat lighting the fuse not McVeigh um, so of course they were asking who's John Doe number two and by this point um, there, there officially was no John Doe number two that's kind of weird right and um, so anyways Um, there is a record of this interaction, uh, the proposed sale of this tape, the tape disappeared. The FBI agent was, um, no longer employed there afterwards. Somehow word had gotten out as to what he was doing. Um, but there's the idea that perhaps Yiki somehow got a copy of this tape and that was what was in the VCR. After all, like what other video footage would he have obtained i mean the aftermath i don't know um there's several photos showing uh, plastic blocks being picked up by firefighters at the scene um there's the uh reports of the devices that were found uh there's also the excuse that the ATF uh had training models that had been found in the rubble that weren't really devices if you will um, but a lot of that is just, it's complete bunk from, from my opinion. So yeah, 15 days after the bombing, um, uh, he, his wife was told that Terry had to get the one page report in or he'd be reprimanded. Um, uh, yeah, there was also several break-ins at, uh, the wife's house. Not just the one with the balloon. That was creepy enough as it is. But they were noticing that her house was regularly getting broken into. Um, There was also, I believe, uh, her car was getting broken into. Uh, There were times where she could tell that people were uh, doing surveillance outside. There was the uh, wired phone calls, uh, wiretapped phone calls. And... um, yeah, the so the days so Yiki's meeting with Chumley, Chumley dies. Uh, there's a letter that he writes to Ramona, uh, Ramona McDonald, who later ended up being put in the psych ward. Uh, I believe that was probably to discredit anything that she had come across over time. Uh, but in the letter, uh, and there is video that you can find on YouTube of Yiki's, I believe it was his mother reading the letter, uh, which she did skip a page or two. Uh, this was an email that was sent. Ramona had luckily printed it off where Yiki was talking about meeting with Chaplain Poe. This was a guy, uh, who was assigned to work with, Oklahoma City police officers who had responded to the call uh, who were there at the scene. So being a chaplain, these conversations are to remain confidential. Poe, they're supposed to remain confidential. But instead, what Poe did was he took down, wrote down a report of everything that Yiki was saying during these meetings and turn them into Yiki's supervisor. In which case, uh, Yiki was told that he was to drop all of the all the crazy notions that he had, and that uh, if he continued looking into it, that bad things could happen to him. So yeah, uh, he's given counsel, but the counsel betrays him. Uh, Everything that he had told Poe, his supervisors then knew, uh, but and this was all expressed in uh, in the letter. Uh, there was also certain people that Ramona McDonald and Yiki had seen uh, at the, the bombing site afterwards. Uh, the two of them were both witnesses to some of the same ATF agents, some of the same FBI agents that had been there and were doing suspicious things that they had noticed. And um, so Yiki, Yiki was referring to this at one point in time. Uh, and he did. Yiki also had his own storage locker, uh, which I believe was uh, stated in Kingfisher in the CNN article. So the, the days leading up to his death, him and his wife were doing fine. She did have a previous personal protection order against him when they divorced, but that had expired. Um, I believe it was something like a hundred days before. And things get really weird the day that he's found dead. Um, so Yiki decides, um, he tries two things. One is that he tries to get Tanya to sign life insurance papers in case he's discovered, right? Uh, so that her and the kids are financially taken care of in the event that something happens to him. She doesn't sign the papers. He then suggests at a later date, run away with me. Let's get remarried. Uh, that way the kids would get his pension. Um, there's the life insurance policy through the police department. Uh, there's all of these different things that he's trying to make sure he knows something's coming, and so she she doesn't say yes, she doesn't say no. Uh, and they're still working on their relationship. Um, so, so then, um, of course, what happens? Well. The day beforehand, he meets with, I believe it was his sister, and uh, he states that he needs to go get his stuff from the storage locker. He has a meeting with some individuals. He doesn't say who exactly it was, um, but the storage locker is empty. There's nothing in his car. uh, After he's found dead, there's several, several pints of blood found in his car to the point where it was dripping off the door, the driver's side door, when it was opened. Um, That's how much blood he lost inside the car. There's also blood that was on the back back windshield that nobody could figure out how the hell did it get there. Um, But yeah, it was... uh, They said that it was like somebody had stuck a pig and left a pig in the car to bleed to death uh, is what it was described as. So, uh, the night, that night he leaves, he goes to El Reno, which he had already told previously, you know, only bad stuff happens there. He did not like going there on his own. Uh, There's the federal prison. Part of me suspected that maybe something happened at the federal prison. Uh, I mean, if you wanted to do some type of activity that was under lock and key, that'd kind of be the place. But uh, I'm guessing maybe not. Um, I'm also positive that might be the same prison that Jesse... No, no, not Jesse. Jesse's the the other brother... Um, the, the Trin- Trinidu, uh where he was probably killed. Uh, so there seems to be a connection there uh, between the El Reno Federal Prison and uh, both Yiki and Trenadou's deaths. Uh, it's very suspicious. Uh, were they done by the same person? I mean, you look at some of the handiwork that was done between uh, Kenneth Trenadou and Terrence Yiki. They have very similar wounds. So, anyways, um, the day that Yiki is found, that morning, Oklahoma City Police Department goes to Yiki's house, and they take his uh, patrol car. Don't know why. uh, Terrence isn't declared missing yet. Nobody knows what had happened to him. He hasn't been found Also that morning, Tanya is contacted by uh, Oklahoma City Police Department and they're trying to get her to sign a personal protection order request, which she refuses to do. And later on, one is presented as evidence of Terry being uh, depressed because she had allegedly done this thing, which she denied doing, and it wasn't her signature that was on the paper. That's kind of weird. Pretty sure forgery is the crime. So, yeah, uh, you have his patrol car uh, being picked up, even though he's not missing. You have uh, them trying to force his wife to sign a PPO order against Yiki before he's found. Um, (laughs) Then, uh, was it... Oh, man, when was that? Okay, so... Canadian County Police Department, or Sheriff's Department, they find the car. Obviously, it's suspicious because it's covered in blood, but there's no body. Uh, they find his body out in the middle of a field. More deputies come out. They start searching the area because it's obvious he was shot in the head, but they're not finding a weapon. So then, uh, once it's reported that Terrence is discovered, his body is discovered, uh The chief of police from the Oklahoma City Police Department, along with the FBI, fly out to the scene in a helicopter where sheriff's deputies are still searching the area for this weapon. The chief of police gets out of the helicopter, goes over towards the body. Uh, Eyewitness accounts state that he dropped a pistol on the ground and said, there it is. How did you not see it? And then the coroner that they brought looks over the body. (coughs) Gotta love dogs. Hunter. Shush. This is why you don't have animals around a life aid. So, anyways, the chief of police somehow um, has the alleged weapon. Don't know why. Then there's um, the coroner who labels it a suicide on the scene. Don't know why. No autopsy was done. Then you have um, the actual crime scene itself. They. they It was described as several people with shovels digging and turning the dirt as if they're either looking for evidence or destroying evidence. True, because apparently no photos were taken. The thing with a suicide, there's several things with a suicide uh, or a declaration of. There's no investigation. It doesn't go any further than that. There's no evidence collected. Um, There's really no reports written On the the, the case, Uh, the FBI does not investigate it. But for some reason, they assisted in this one. Um, The Oklahoma City Police Department did not have jurisdiction. This was outside of their area of um, where they they operate. And for some reason, they took over the case. Um, Other things about a suicide. So all the things that Terrence was... Uh, afraid of his, his family not being financially secure, his, his wife and kids not being taken care of. Uh, We're all legitimate because in the case of a suicide, his pension does not get paid out. Though any life insurance policy is not paid out. Um, So this wasn't just an attack on Yiki himself, but the police department doing this was also punishing the family for what he was looking into. Uh, the family ended up going bankrupt afterwards. They lost their house. They ended up having to move. Uh, meanwhile, uh, everyone is fighting. They demanded an autopsy. Didn't get one. How do you get refused an autopsy? That's highly suspicious. Kind of reminds you of Kenneth to because remember, Jesse was fighting to make sure that his, his brother's body was not cremated without their permission. So, yeah, there's, there's all these really highly suspicious things after Yiki's death. The, the disappearance of the evidence that he had collected. Um, they still gave him posthumously the, the award that he did not want to accept. And he had stated... Uh, he didn't want it because it associated him with the other people who were pretending to have been there when uh, uh, the rescue was taking place. Uh, at, after the the bombing, uh, there was the woman that was sent to meet with uh, President Bill Clinton, uh, who was not at the scene. Yiki flat out told everybody she wasn't there. Why was she sent? It was a photo op. Um, there were other people who were getting all kinds of awards. He's like, they weren't there. What the hell is going on? So yeah, the, the one guy who was actually there, who actually saved people, who witnessed what had happened immediately after, uh, the explosion. Um, he doesn't even live long enough to accept the award. Um, and that was what was happening. There was also a fight, uh, fight an argument that happened between him and the police chief uh i believe it was the day before yiki uh was found where eyewitnesses said uh terrence had stormed out of the office and the police chief said if you keep looking into this they're gonna find you deleted um this was said to to yiki after um Whatever conversation that they had had, uh, so yeah, that was that was uh, witnessed by several people. And that was a conversation between Yiki and the chief of police at the time. Uh, and immediately after he was, uh, his body was discovered. They the. Oklahoma city police department was leaking to the press that there was trouble at home. He had marriage problems. There was the PPO. He was depressed that he couldn't save more people. Um, after the explosion, um, ever since he injured his back, he just wasn't the same. They had like all these excuses already lined up. Meanwhile, Yiki is working with all these other people to try to figure out what the hell happened. Um, And yeah, there were people around him that were disappearing, that were being locked up into um, insane asylums. Um, So all these horrible... There was the uh, Chaplain Poe who completely betrayed any trust that he had in any type of system. It just seems like Yiki was the kind of guy that played ball, followed the rules... And unfortunately for him, that was what got him killed. Uh, that conversation that he had with Ramona, um, where he, he was meeting with probably the same people that had been at her place, uh, the fact that he thought that anybody of any official stature was actually investigating this. Um, unfortunately, it just shows like how naive... He probably was. Um, It's just uh, a really, really sad case. And yeah, there's... So when you go into the Medusa Files by Craig Roberts, um, he talks about... He suspected that Yiki was investigating or had evidence of... um, Radiation levels uh, that were at the scene afterwards. There's really no telling. Um, I don't know. It just... That didn't really fit with me because he wanted photos of what was in the pit. Um, That was, like, one of his main things was he had seen something down there. Evidence that the, the blast went out, not in, which... Yeah, why are there pits? There was also the record of... um, The seismic records of not one, but I believe three um, vibrations, explosions that happened uh, around seconds later from each other. Um, Some morons, you know, the science, uh, tried to say that, well one is the shock wave and the other is the actual momentum of the blast and it's, no <laughs> no that's that's not um that, that, that's not how that works there's there's one um blast so yeah um there were let's see here what else was there yeah, so Yiki had definitely seen some stuff uh, enough to make him convinced that there was it was not what they said it was. Uh, I believe he was focusing on what was possibly inside the building at the time of uh, detonation. Uh, I think that he also might have come across evidence of John Doe number two, which in order for uh, in order for the feds to get a death sentence, a conviction uh, for McVeigh that he, w- he would have to be the sole person who did this, and for anybody to have evidence of other people being directly involved or possibly McVeigh himself not the one lighting the fuse, uh, that would kill the case. McVeigh would remain alive. There's a possibility that he would talk. Uh, And luckily for Terry Nichols, he was far enough away from, he he wasn't at the actual incident. And perhaps they figured he didn't know enough information to tell the the, the real story, an alternate story. Um, Whereas McVeigh, he he definitely, (laughs) if you ever read um, The Secret Lives of Timothy McVeigh, by uh, Wendy Painting, you're going to learn that McVeigh definitely had a story to tell. And he did tell that story. Initially, the, the, the lawyers that he had assigned to him, the initial story that he told them, there's a lot of evidence backing that up. Uh, so for somebody like Terry Yiki, a police officer, you cannot discredit uh, the kind of work that he did on the day of. Uh, If there's any true heroes out of the event, out of something as horrible as that, it would have been that man. Uh, So if he came up with evidence that the story isn't true, like, that is probably the biggest threat you're going to come across. How do you discredit a man like that? So, anyways... um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that... I brought up the letter. Um, There was all the things that were happening with his wife and his sister. Yeah, and the family was under surveillance after Terry's death as well. It's almost like somebody was trying to see, is there any other evidence they know about that perhaps Yiki had collected that they knew of and... um, Uh, wanted to see if there's anything else that they could uh, steal. Because, yeah, that that sounds like some some great law enforcement there. Yeah. Um, And at one point, Terry, Terrence Yeeke, bigger than Vince Foster. Yeah. Not many people are talking about Vince Foster anymore. Uh, But uh, I'm not sure... Let's see here, show, can't, uh, both lies while on air. Uh, some of my notes, I'm having trouble remembering, like, what the hell it's referring to. So, yeah, um, FBI assisted a suicide investigation. <laughs> there's, there's so many freaking red flags here. It's, uh computer and police vehicle not working um, yeah apparently his uh, computer stopped working in the uh, the uh, uh, car that he was his patrol car on that day so yeah there's um anyways I think that is about it so anyways. That is uh, the story of Terrence Yeeke. Which unfortunately, even with all the other eyewitness accounts, all the other people who are looking at the same thing as him. Uh, I remember... I'll close off with this. I remember when this happened in 1996. And I don't remember the show that I was watching. It, it, it could have been Unsolved Mysteries. But uh, there was... I believe it was some type of journalist show. I don't know if it was like Dateline or, or what the heck it was. But they talked about Yiki being found dead, uh, all the cuts, the field. I remember they had video footage of what the field looked like the day of with all the detectives around the body. Uh, I remember they had photos of the helicopter coming in with the chief of police. Uh, I remember there being interviews about what Yiki was looking into and the things that he was telling people. And, uh, yeah, that had always stuck with me. I would have been like a sophomore in high school. Uh, and you know, it's the nineties. So here's the, one of the problems that I had with trying to put a book together about Yiki was, you're talking the mid-1990s, so everything is either on videotape or whatever was put on DVD, because DVD was, like, starting around that time. It That was some high-tech stuff. DVDs were very expensive. Most stuff was released on VHS. So you've got VHS tapes regarding the, the OKC uh, event with... Um, Probably no longer being in existence. If it is, it's in storage. And who knows what the quality is. Um, The books, I've been trying to get my hands on books on the subject. Especially with uh, Charles Ray. And um, like I said, they don't ever make it to my house. It's weird. And then the stuff that does make it to my house, it's delayed by a day or two. Like all of a sudden, it just stops. You know, I'm looking at... At my phone, I'm looking at trying to figure out where my stuff is because it's already arriving late. And then it arrives a day or two later than it was supposed to. Um, a lot of the online items, um, there's the, um, the Horton uh, Libertarian Institute, Scott Horton. Um, they have a lot of stuff on there. But then there's still stuff that I'm looking for, uh, video footage that I'm looking for that I remember seeing uh, all these years ago, uh, which poof, just just gone. Uh, so it's it's really difficult. This is one of those events where a lot of the people who are tied to it, they're now at that age where they're it. It's like that time period where World War II veterans were just dropping like flies and that's what's happening with uh with this event and um there's really a limited time span here to actually piece everything together and I feel like Wendy Painting is doing a really good job of putting the puzzle pieces together there seems to be a couple of other people out there now um Botsman Booty uh, he's doing a lot of work on the people outside of, uh, who are affiliated with, but outside the actual, uh, plot, uh, he's putting a lot of things together. Uh, and, um, yeah, I just, I kept hitting dead ends and, um, it's just, uh, it's one of those things where. I'd rather have all the information in one place so that somebody else can dig deeper into it later than just have it be this weird urban legend that people talk about. And, um, yet we, <laughs> we know what happened. It's just finding the evidence to piece everything together as to what actually happened. Who were the two dudes? Who were the ones that showed up at Ramona's place? Uh, and of course, of course, she's going to be completely discredited because of uh, her, her history of mental health. So um, it's just, man, it's just one of those tales. It, it's, it's basically like the, the prequel to 9-11. <laughs> it really is. Uh, and why is it? Everything that happened after uh, this event. Everything lined up just like it did with 9-11. The government response, the things that they did, where funding went to, uh, the laws that were passed. Why is Joe Biden involved in both of them? (laughs) I don't know. So anyways, uh, that's about it for me. I mean, this is already going on an hour and a half. Um, I can't really think of anything else that I came across that needs to be talked about. Um, yeah, it's, um, anyways, so that's about it. Uh, that's the story of Terrence Yeeke, the things that happened to him. There's the, the year that followed afterwards, uh, the harassment that he dealt with, um, people constantly telling him to just drop the case and he never did because he's an actual police officer. Unlike these other people out there who just refuse to answer questions. Because plausible deniability is always the best policy. It's funny how the X-Files nailed that. Keep on typing.